Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. In the past few meetings, we've been talking about spiritual healing, resting in non-duality rather than focusing on problems and fixing, trusting innate wholeness, innate goodness. And then last meeting was more devotion as a way of resting in that wholeness. So today I'd like to talk about two topics that at first glance seem pretty much unrelated, but the more I look at them, the more they really uh, are uh, very related, very much the same thing in in an incredibly interesting way. And the two topics are boredom, a very interesting topic, not a boring topic, and non-duality. Very often we pay attention to what's going on, we jump into our practice when emotions, when feelings, when sensations are relatively strong. Something is going on that doesn't feel good uh, before the meeting, 
John was saying he wanted to talk about some difficult emotions he's been having lately. Uh, he didn't say he wanted to talk about some boring feelings he's having lately. Nobody ever wants to talk about them, much less even look at them. Sometimes we have very wonderful feelings, sensations, perceptions, and then we like to talk about them too. Attachment in Tibetan is called Shenpa, but attachment is the creator of negativity. We're, we're not going to feel negative unless we have attachment. And it's very difficult for most people to be aware of rage or deep fear when emotions get really, really strong. It's much more uh, accessible to be with feelings, be with emotions, two different things, when they're in a much more beginning spark-like stage. And what often happens then is that we begin to have an emotion and we, th we throw thoughts on the emotion and then it becomes a much bigger spark. It turns into a fire, kind of like the fires that are going on in California now. It started with a spark somewhere. Uh, and when we put thoughts on the fire, it gets bigger and bigger. I'm going to uh, equate this with working with boredom. Boredom is a very familiar state of mind, but one that we have a hard time paying attention to. One of my Vipassana teachers long ago said, we tend to mistake mental excitement for happiness. And what often happens when there's not excitement going on is we get bored. Uh, in our current culture, people have uh, stimulation at their fingertips. You can just go to your computer, go to your screen, whatever it is, and the knowledge of the universe is right there. Entertainment of every variety, knowledge of every variety, excitement of every variety is available. So that we're, we're getting more and more used to being stimulated. And when there isn't stimulation, uh, it becomes harder and harder to pay attention. We begin to think when there's not stimulation, there's something that's wrong. Interestingly, the word boredom is not something that was talked about in early Buddha scriptures. And in fact, the word wasn't even uh, in public use till uh, Dickens started talking about it in the 1850s or so. So boredom is a, is, a, is a modern concept, but it is a very fascinating concept because boredom is almost always covering over feelings of emptiness, vulnerability, anxiety that we don't like to feel. So that as soon as the boredom arises, there is a very strong tendency to get lost in thought. Can we, and I'm going to now talk about a several stage process. The first stage is, can you begin to become aware of boredom? Like right now, this is a pretty boring talk so far, right? I would, I would say so. So what does it feel like right now? This isn't as exciting as talking about spiritual healing or great devotion or working with fear. What does it feel like in your body? 
going beyond any stories about it, what does it feel like to just uh, have this feeling of slight emptiness of maybe it's uncovering a sense of loneliness, a sense of vulnerability? So that when there's no distraction, can we still relate to what it is that's going on? Does the boredom begin to uncover these often unconscious feelings of dissatisfaction and anxiety that are uh, not particularly intense, but they're sort of uh, floating around underneath the level of awareness? looking into boredom. Once again, we tend to get lost in thought. Uh, you're walking from one place to another. You're lying down in your bed at night. You're getting into your car. And very often when we're doing those things, we're lost in thought. There's this, this inner monologue going on. When we're feeling bored, there's this reaction that something is wrong. We need to do something. Let's start thinking about it. Let's start having a story about it. We often think that boredom is a problem not with us, but with the world, that the world isn't interesting enough, the world isn't exciting enough. Uh, instead of being able to come back to ourselves, we're, we're, we're blaming the world. In Certain schools of non-duality, there's this phrase, mind the gap. And boredom has a lot to do with being in the gap, the gap between thoughts, the gap between emotions, the gap, the gap between breaths. And this is now how we're connecting the notion of boredom and the notion of non-duality. Non-duality is usually noticed in the gap. Non-duality is usually noticed when there is not strong emotion, mental stimulation, physical stimulation. And what we mean here by non-duality is that we're not identifying with the content. Content is still arising, but we're instead dropping our clinging to the known, trusting our basic nature, trusting our inherent goodness, and even beginning to be aware of awareness itself. In Vipassana practice, there is a great emphasis on awareness and objects of awareness. In Dzogchen, or as the Tibetans call it, or in non-dual practice, there's much less emphasis on the object and more on recognizing the empty nature of awareness and resting in that. When we look for awareness, when you try to be aware of awareness, there's nothing to find. Awareness is invisible, it's groundless, but there's a knowing quality. So in this gap that we often begin to categorize as boring, can we begin to be aware of the knowing quality, the knowing quality of consciousness itself? So rather than the fabricated mindfulness of Vipassana, it's an unfabricated mindfulness that's being aware of the nature of the mind itself. Here's what I got excited about this week, that 
all these moments where you can just be bored, where I can just be bored, it's just one tiny step away from going into this state of non-dual awareness, minding the gap, being in that gap. So that in Buddhism, there's the sudden school of awareness and the gradual school of awareness. The gradual school is you, you do a lot of mindfulness practice, you do a, maybe a lot of compassion practice as well in some other schools, and eventually you wear away identification with separateness, and there you have it. In the, in the, in the, in the sudden school of enlightenment, the sudden school, what happens is that we look directly at consciousness itself and the mind just opens up. Now, for some fortunate people, this sudden awakening happens almost unexpectedly. For most of us, there's some combination of gradual and sudden awakening that we have to prepare the ground. We have to prepare ourselves for the sudden awakening because the sudden awakening is ego death. It's resting in the nature of mind. Here's one of my all-time favorite quotes from one of my first meditation teachers, Kalu Rinpoche. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality with a capital R. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we will see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. There is a reality. We are the reality. When we see this, we'll see that we are nothing, and being nothing, we are everything. That is all. Sounds very simple. It is very simple. Very challenging. Confusion arises when we take discursive thoughts to be real. Can we look at this essence? Can we use this notion of boredom and flip it on its head in a certain way and be in that gap, the gap between exciting, distracting moments, the gap between thoughts, the gap between breaths, and go back to this quality of mind essence. Can you do that right now? Can you, instead of focusing on trying to understand what I'm saying, can you go back to just knowing the moment and being with the knowing quality rather than the object that is known. When you're distracted, you notice you're distracted and look at the essential nature of even distraction. So that this quality of going back to the nature of things is easier in the gap at first, but eventually it's something that we begin to get in a very fundamental way permeates the non-gap, it permeates thought, it permeates activity. So that we're eliminating the meditator and the object of meditation. Sometimes I get called or even call myself a meditation teacher. And I think meditation in some way is a very dangerous concept because it is reifying the sense that there is a me who is meditating 
and usually to get from one place to a better place. Maharaji would always try to distract us when people would meditate in front of him. He'd throw fruit at you, he'd pull your beard, he'd start telling jokes. Because meditating is, okay, I'm going to collect this, or I'm going to get better, I'm going to, I'm going to try a little harder. Who's trying? What are you trying to do? Where are you trying to go? So as a very simple exercise, can we, instead of being caught in our thoughts, can we look directly at that which is producing the thought? Look at the, at the process of thinking rather than the thoughts themselves. So instead of looking at the background, you're looking directly at self. And when we can't stay with this essential quality, we tend to grasp, we tend to uh, go after objects. As a simple exercise now, can we let the mind go out with the breath? Every time you breathe out, just let awareness go out into spaciousness. Not grasping at anything in particular, and as you breathe in, just be natural and easy. Just letting go of all grasping as you breathe out. Some people look very happy. Some people look very puzzled right now. <laughs> so, so this eye process is just like hearing or seeing or thinking. It's not something that needs to be destroyed, and it, it's not going to be destroyed, but it's something that we no longer identify with. It's sort of the notion, I'm not in my body, but my body is in me. One of my other teachers, Jean Klein, said, at first we feel like we are in a cage, then we realize that the cage is in us. Okay, so who is this us that the cage is in? It's pure consciousness. So when you're resting in the state of being, where do you feel it's located? Is it any particular place? No, it's not any particular place. It's everywhere. From the top of your toes to the top of your head, from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head, outside of your body, consciousness is everywhere. When you really begin to pay attention to this nature, it's not boring. It's very alive. It's the most alive thing. Do you need to do anything to be here? No, you don't. In fact, you can't not be here. You cannot notice it. But we're always with this knowing, cognizant quality of mind. Is this unfamiliar? No. In fact, it's so familiar that we don't notice it. It's the most intimate thing there is. It's more intimate than our breath. We could have this whole conversation also from a theistic standpoint. If you say your mantra enough and you just die into love, this thing we're talking about is nature of mind. It could also be called love with a capital L, unconditional love. And in fact, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, they say very clearly that 
the the easiest way to find this ability to rest in nature of mind, to rest in in the one mind, is through devotion. It can be done in a purely mental way, and that's what I've been talking about so far. But that which you invoke when you sit down to meditate, that which you love, can we rest in that? Can we trust that so deeply that we can be allowing thoughts, perceptions, sensations to be coming and going? That whole quality of spiritual healing that we were talking about is fundamentally doing what we're talking about today in a bit more specific way of going directly to nature of mind, being with the knowing quality, being with love itself, and trusting that. And when we lose trust, when we start grasping, just notice that grasping and let go, let go back into the trusting so that we we look very clearly at the nature of, of mind. Right now, you just look at the knowing quality, awareness, and you let go of the looker. You're just seeing nature of mind. Content continues to arise. You keep hearing the sound of my voice, but you're just resting in knowing. And when, when grasping arises, when you start getting bored and we start hanging on to something, you just liberate that. You just let go of that and come back to resting. Totally without effort. It's so close. It's so intimate. It's the nature of who we are. And in terms of healing, it liberates healing it because we're resting in wholeness. If there is the karmic readiness for you or the person you're, uh, quote, working with, unquote, to be healed, then healing happens to the extent that the universe or God or karma allows it to happen. So that all this grasping that I'm going to heal myself, I'm going to fix this other person, we can do some basic body and fender work to chill out the mind enough to be able to do what we're talking about here. But this is where the healing happens. But until the mind and the heart mind finds enough equanimity to trust emptiness, this is going to be very difficult to do. And I would suggest that this practice of resting in Empty awareness, unfabricated mindfulness, the knowing quality is something that's practiced best in short spurts. So that many of you in this room, particularly the people I've known, have been, been doing these practices for years, if not decades. How long do we keep being mindful of our breath? How much do we have to prepare for beginning to trust nature of mind? How much equanimity do you really need? The mind is going to keep moving. <laughs> That's the nature of the mind. It moves. It's the nature of the body. It moves. Sensations come and go. Perceptions come and go. Thoughts come and go. And occasionally, 
through serendipity or practice, things balance. The mind gets quiet, the body feels great, and we think this is the way it's supposed to be. But even when things are completely out of balance, that is equally nature of mind. When there are strong emotions, when my son's house might burn down if the wind changes, right? That's, that's still nature of mind. And then we can apply this whole talk to being with dying, preparing to die, guiding someone who's dying, dying in any mind state other than the one that we're exploring right now is going to be difficult and scary. If you are resting in this wholeness, dying is another moment of wholeness. If you're not, this is the worst possible outcome. (laughs) We're practicing to die in a very non-morbid way. We're dying into our true nature, moment to moment to moment. I choose to be around dying people because it reminds me who I am. And it's a job. (laughs) And it's maybe one of the more important jobs, but it's still, it's fundamentally, it's not about dying. It's about realizing wholeness. And that very often the people who are most willing to do this, this, radical surrender that we're talking about today are people who know they're dying. That great quote of Trunk was that I love so much, where he says that until you come in intimate contact with death, your spiritual practice will have the quality of you being a dilettante, of just playing on the surface. So when you know you're dying, there might then be the motivation to again and again explore this abyss of radical surrender. The mind creates the abyss, the heart crosses the abyss. Conditioning will not stop, but eventually we become outside of it. We become comfortable with our conditioning. We have a body that doesn't always feel good. We have a mind that sometimes gets active. We have emotions and thoughts that are coming and going. But we're not identified with the conditioning. Ramdas famously said, if you're a son of a bitch and you get enlightened, you'll be an enlightened son of a bitch. The personality doesn't go away. We can spend a lot of time and a lot of money going to therapy and trying to uh, fix the body and fix the mind, go to yoga class and do all those things. And it's useful to get to the point where we trust that we can make this radical surrender. Maharaji said, the only thing that's important is how much you love God. Where we could translate that into these Buddhist terms, the only thing that's important is surrendering into nature of mind. Just different language for exactly the same thing. Okay, so who would like to make a remark from essence of mind? Not putting any pressure on anybody here. So Carly brings up a really great point that very often 
this subtle working with the mind, working with not identifying, but trusting the spaciousness, if you will, is learned in the beginning by working with the body. The body is much less manipulative and seductive than the mind is. So that can we be with pain and not identify with it? And to take this back to the way we started the talk today, the body can be boring, right? Sometimes it's not the dentist. Sometimes it's not bliss. Sometimes it's not pain. Sometimes it's just right now you're sitting in your body, your butt's on the chair or the cushion or the sofa, wherever you are. What does that feel like? Can, can that be the, the, the portal to resting in nature of mind? Can we use boring sensation as well as the painful sensation? Do we have to wait till we have the dentist appointment? Can we use the boring sensation to take us directly to that place? What's more important than preparing to die? What's more important than dying into love? Letting go of identification with ego structure doesn't at all imply not doing. So that, in fact, my experience is that the less I'm attached to who I think I am, the more freely and actively and wisely action comes flowing out of me. And in fact, in, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, one of the three defining qualities of the awakened mind is naturally arising compassionate activity. So the more we rest in this place that we're talking about here, the more likely that you will be responding to suffering in the world as you see it, rather than, although certainly there are people whose karma is to sit in the cave and respond to suffering by sitting in a cave. It doesn't mean that necessarily you're out uh, actively protesting or doing things like that, but that there will be some natural way for you to express compassion. Trust, you're expressing the essential nature, the empty nature of mind. But really the takeaway here is that those neutral moments, the neutral feeling states where we tend to get lost in the mind, because there's not something intense going on, it's easier in terms of our conditioning to go directly from there to this profound openness. When there's strong emotions going on, we feel we have to deal with the emotions. The emotions tend to be more, seem more real. When the feeling states are really neutral, it tends to uncover this, this baseline of vulnerability, anxiety, loneliness, that we're usually trying to stay busy enough that we don't feel uh, too directly. Either we're busy or we're thinking, right? <laughs> or probably both. So is it possible to not be busy and let go of this need to think and just be with is the sensation of boredom, the sensations, the, the more subtle sensations, and let that be the, the, the cue or the gateway to resting and wholeness. One more comment, then we'll take a break. Um, I'm Dale Zuck. 
the uh, the quote, you know, say, uh, Maharaji saying the only thing that's important is how much you love God. Right. I, I was curious, did he ever say anything about like uh, what, who or what God is? Like, how do you love something? My question around that is like, how do you love something that you're not really sure who or what that is? You know, I grew up being told God is a certain thing and come to learn that it's not, it wasn't just that thing. And so... I, did he ever talk about um, how to know who or what God is instead of just love? Like, I like the idea of loving God, but how do I, how do I know I'm, how does one one know? Well, the New Testament says God is love, and I think that's a pretty good place to start for a lot of people. We were sitting with him once, and somebody asked him how to meditate, and he said, meditate the way Christ did which was kind of a shocking question because I didn't remember in the Bible where it said how Christ meditated. Apparently, Maharaji knew how Christ meditated. And so somebody said, well, how did Christ meditate? And he closed his eyes, and the atmosphere got very thick. And he said, and I think he started crying, and he said, Christ lost himself in love. He gave his, his body for the Dharma. He never died. He never died. He just became love. As people mature in spiritual development, their notion of God matures. And if somebody still has childhood fixations or unmet psychological needs, they tend to see God or a teacher or teaching as something to depend on, something that's real and that I can, I can, think about and will help me and protect me the, the way a child needs a mother and a father. And as you grow older, you you still have parents, but you don't need them. You don't depend on them in the same way. So I believe in God, but it's not, and I have pictures, I mean, right, if you look around the room there, I mean, right from where we're sitting, there's Chakrasamvara and and Shiva and Maharaji and Hanuman and Durga and, and Jesus and everything. And they're not outside. They're, they're not something separate. They're just reminders of wholeness, if you will. Ask God to show herself in any way that it's appropriate for you. Or you can just do this more Buddhist thing where it's, it's nature of mind. It doesn't have to be thought of as an anthropomorphized being at all. At the same time, my personal experience that these, these, these deities and these gurus are real. They're completely real, and they're completely metaphorical at the same time. But Maharaji said very, very clearly, I'm not this body. People think I'm this body. That's a mistake. So in that moment where you or I let go of identification with the objects of consciousness and are resting in consciousness itself, that's God. But we, we generally can't stay there because we're so identified with our conditioning. 